0: This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM.
1: Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel Halsey Street. First with the author, Naima Koster, and then with my guests, Emily Moore and Sophronia Scott. And stay tuned at the end of the show a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Halsey Street is where Penelope Grand grew up, with her father, Ralph, who ran a locally famous record shop, and her mother, Mireya, who cleaned houses. It is the street from which she moved away to try to forge her own life as a painter, and the street to which she returns in her late twenties to care for her father after her mother leaves him and moves back to the Dominican Republic. It's a street that has suddenly become home to gourmet markets and sushi bars, a street that doesn't look the way it used to anymore. It's the place where Penelope has to figure out if or how she belongs and who she is. The place where she has to, in her mother's words, find her life. I had the opportunity to talk with Naima Coster last week, and I'd like to share that interview. You now. Naima Coster grew up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and attended Yale University in our very own New Haven. She received her MFA in fiction from Columbia University and currently teaches writing at Wake Forest University. Halsey Street is her first novel. Naima, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM.
2: Sid, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So to me, this was a book about so many things. It's a mother-daughter story. It's a kind of of coming-of-age tale. It's a book about race and gentrification. So I wanted to start just by asking you where the book started for you. Was it a character or a place or an idea? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how it evolved from there.
2: Yes, the book started for me with the character of Penelope, who I imagined as a young woman stuck somewhere in between the roles of gentrifier and gentrified. And I started with her, I think, because that was the position that I most related to. And some of the questions that she has and some of the discomfort and anxiety that she has around gentrification is how I felt as I noticed some of the neighborhoods I loved, and that I'd grown up in and had deep ties to in Brooklyn changing. And so I wanted to begin with her sort of trying to find her place in the change landscape of her neighborhood, but I wanted to make sure that I told a larger story about gentrification as well and how for different people it activates different kinds of questions about their identities and who they are and how they can form meaningful relationships with the people that they're sharing space with.
1: And so was that part of why Mireya's voice started coming into the story?
2: It is. I knew that Mireya was a character who had to belong in the story, both because she is a part of the story of Brooklyn and gentrification and how people feel differently about it, and also because she's part of Penelope's story and why Penelope has some difficulty in confronting home. So for Penelope, it's not just that her neighborhood has changed, but that home is a site of a lot of pain for her because of some of the difficulties that she had with her mother and with her family. So Mireya filled sort of both of those gaps in the book.
1: So talk to me a little bit about how that came to be. What was the point in your writing process where you realized that this additional voice needed to be part of your narrative?
2: It was relatively early on. I started with Penelope and wrote, several chapters in her perspective and the book was unfolding chronologically in a way that seemed very conventional for a novel but the writing kept turning to this missing mother character and I knew that Penelope was so hurt and so angry that she would never do justice to the story of her mother. And I also knew that the fact that Penelope's mind and my mind kept turning to this absent character meant that there was something really special and dynamic about her. So I was maybe three or four chapters into the book when I knew that I wanted to visit Mireia in the present time in the Dominican Republic, and so I did. And then from there, the book started drifting into the past as well. And I've always been interested in memory as a writer, but I didn't intend for this book to be one that moves back and forth through time, although that's ultimately what it does.
1: And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, as you said, the book doesn't unfold in a strict chronological sense. It sort of seems as if it's going to when it begins, but it doesn't. And it moves back and forth between these two voices. And I imagine it's more difficult to write a book that moves both between voices and between times than it is to write something straight chronological from one perspective and I wondered how you did that if it if you wrote certain pieces and kind of moved them around like a puzzle or if it just unfolded more organically than that
2: it did unfold organically for me at least in the drafting stage and then when I was revising there was a lot of moving around and reshaping of the pieces but since the book doesn't always move chronologically, especially between their perspectives, one of the things that I was trying to do was have the book move thematically. So if there is a chapter in Penelope's Perspective where we're thinking about how families entertain in Gentrified Brooklyn and how they organize their parlors and think about inviting friends and how friends feel about the neighborhood, that would lead me to think about What was it like entertaining in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn in the 90s when Penelope was growing up? And how did parties work for her family? And so there's actually a part of the book where there's a party set in the past. And that grew out of an interest that was beginning to bubble up in the present of the book.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And are you an outliner when you write?
2: You know, I'm not an outliner yet, but I am increasingly convinced of the value of outlining. So something that I do, I don't necessarily plan the action of the book, but I will think about what the chapter in the book is supposed to reveal in terms of the interior of the characters or in terms of the dynamics and relationships. So that's what I begin with. What do I want to understand about the characters Mm -hmm. in this section of the book? And what do I want the readers to understand? And then sort of the events and the plot grow out of that. So I do some planning for that, but usually not that much for the action of the book. That comes later for me once I've gotten to know everyone.
1: Do you have a sense when you begin of where you'll end, even in terms of what's going to be revealed about the characters, if not in terms of the action?
2: I do usually start with a sense of how I want the book or the story to end. And I think that that's because when a character comes to me and her situation, I think about what would be a meaningful journey or resolution for this person. (laughs) So that's not always the ending that I end up writing, but there's usually some seed or some part of the ending I originally envisioned in the book. So the end of Halsey Street. Isn't the one that I envisioned, but there's a scene before the ending that's the one that I originally imagined. So it made it in there.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And so when you got to that scene, did you think, oh, I'm finished? And then there's part of you that thought, oh no, I'm not?
2: Yes. Well, there's a part of me that thought, I've tied up this this plot line in the book. So I knew that I wanted the book to show some sort of progress for Penelope in terms of her acceptance of herself as an artist. And her willingness to re-inhabit the house that she grew up in, that she'd been avoiding for so long, I knew that that was an important story to tell. And so I wrote that, and I knew that I'd resolved that part of the story. But I hadn't really resolved the story of Penelope and her mother yet, which was the story that emerged as I was writing. So I knew that I had to finish the book in a different way than I originally intended.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about the ending, because it doesn't give too much away, I don't think, maybe a little bit, so spoiler alert, to say that in the end, Penelope is back living in the house that she grew up in on Halsey Street. And it was interesting to me because there's a line where she says earlier that that's not what she wants. She says to live there would be to go backward into a life she hadn't chosen. And so I feel like there is a kind of ambiguity present in that ending because she is kind of back where she started from. And there's a question about how much of a journey she has taken. And I think there's certainly intimations that she has moved, you know, if not physically, then, you know, in terms of her own emotional and growth and maturation. And yet there there is something a little ambiguous about that. And I wondered if you intended that.
2: Yes, I did intend that ambiguity because I think, you know, Penelope moving into the house in many ways is meant to mirror her working through her relationship with her family and I think that the question that she's facing is one that many people in their late 20s, early 30s, or really any critical juncture in their lives are trying to answer, which is how do I preserve my family connections with my family of origin on my own terms? And can I be connected to the people who raised me as an adult? How do I do that in a way that doesn't feel stagnant, but that feels like a part of my flourishing? And so I think that that's a difficult question with no clear answer. And so I wanted that ambiguity to be alive in the book for Penelope when she moves back home, but doesn't move back home as a child, but as a woman and an artist trying to live on her own terms.
1: It was interesting to me too, the way that that kind of mirrored her mother's move, that her mother leaves the Dominican Republic to forge her own life in New York. And then at the end, well, not at the end of her life, but in the middle of her life, chooses to go back to the home of her mother. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. It was interesting for me that in the book, I ended up writing about two women who, who leave domestic life and leave home behind in search of freedom and sort of believe that they have to do that to live independent lives that include the fulfillment of their desires. And I think part of the growth of both characters is figuring out how to do that and live that life that they want without having to run away.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about these two characters. So Penelope is the one who, in broad strokes, is obviously closer to you uh, as an individual. Um, Did you find it easier or harder to write her? than to write Maria's character? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question.
2: I found it really challenging and exciting to write both women. And I think that for both of them, I had to find a point of connection or a way in. Um, So for Penelope, part of it was age, um, part of it was education, and then part of it was the desire to live a creative life. Um, But sort of beyond that, there was a lot that I had to imagine about her and a lot of study that I had to do since I'm not a visual artist. So I did a lot of picking up um, and reading art magazines and talking to friends of mine who are artists and trying to understand what art school is like as an experience. And it was same for Mireya, although I myself am not an immigrant or a mother. um, I knew that I had points of connection for her. And so some of that was um, feeling like marriage and domestic life were sometimes at odds with some of my ambitions. So that was a way into her. And then there were things that I had to imagine about her upbringing uh, in a rural mountain town in the Dominican Republic. So I think that even if I have more biographically in common with Penelope, the process of writing both of them was one of discovery that required mining my own personal experience, but also looking beyond it.
1: Mm -hmm. Talk talk to me a little bit more about Penelope as an artist. I was really struck by the fact that she's a visual artist because I think that it is, um, it's hard to write another medium, you know, to use words to describe something that's intended to be perceived visually. And you could have chosen to make her a failed or a struggling writer uh, which, you know, in some ways, as as mm-hmm. you know, would be not just closer to your experience, but feels like is easier to write about writing. Mm-hmm. So why that choice?
2: So I think there are a couple of reasons I made that choice. The first is that I've always been interested in the visual arts and had a desire to paint and to draw. So part of it was just a way for me to live vicariously through my character. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for Penelope and her habit of running. I also run, but I cannot run as quickly or as far as Penelope. So there was some of that that was about having an exhilarating experience while I was writing. So that was one very personal motivation for making her an artist. But I also thought that for a book about gentrification, it would be really interesting to have a character who's constantly thinking about the visual world and how things look since gentrification is a process by which a neighborhood is being remade in part aesthetically. So Mm. the storefronts look different. The people walking down the street are wearing different clothes and might have different hairstyles or jewelry. And so it's a kind of visual remaking of a place. And I was really interested in the way her investment in creating images and leaving a mark through the use of artistic materials might put her in an interesting position to speak back to gentrification. And it was a lot of fun to write that.
1: So both Penelope and Mireya are difficult people and they both make some bad choices. So I wonder if as a writer, you were ever tempted to make them less flawed, either because you worried about their flaws, creating maybe too much distance between themselves and the reader, or because you as their creator, maybe wanted to save them from themselves.
2: I think that when I wrote Halsey Street, in part, what I wanted to capture was how much life can hurt. And so what I mean by that is how much gentrification can hurt, how much having a difficult family history or a difficult relationship between a mother and a daughter can hurt. And I think that I didn't want to turn away from that or um, to elide it. In fact, I was really interested in trying to get underneath it, right? So Mm -hmm. if someone is disappointed or angry what does that feel like in their body and what can i do as a writer to show that besides simply asserting that they're angry or looking away so that the writing can be cooler or somehow more tempered and so i knew that that was really important to me to render the real effects of some of these forces both large and social and then also really intimate and domestic on people's lives and i think that whenever you know, we're reading about things that hurt or the things that people do when they're hurt, it's uncomfortable. But I also think that it's worth looking at and trying to understand. And so for me, I I wasn't willing to make either woman behave better, I think, rather than showing some of the reasons for their behavior and the ways that their behavior affects them and the people around them. And for me, that's part of what is most interesting about reading books, which is really understanding people's motivations and understanding why actions that seem incomprehensible can actually be really understood if we spend some time in the mind of the character.
1: Yeah, for me, one of the ways this book was really successful was it not excusing any of their behavior at kind of acknowledging it, and yet showing what lay underneath it so as to make it understandable. In particular, there is that scene between Maria and Ralph when she throws the coffee pot at him. Yes. And we, up until that point, don't know what's happened. But when we actually witnessed the scene, I was so moved by Mireya's pain in that moment of her feeling of being so disconnected from Ralph and so unseen and so unimportant. And of how much pain that she was in, that even though her action is still inexcusable, it absolutely made sense to me.
2: I'm so glad to hear that that was your reading experience, because I think a lot about how sometimes in fiction, there seems to be an edging away from some of the uglier undersides of life. So, you know, an argument where people really raise their voices and shout, or, you know, Mireya being so angry that she throws something at her partner. And I think that I wanted my fiction to be true to some of the more difficult moments in life, or certainly that I've had in my life or in my family or families like mine. And I didn't want to write a book in which nobody raised their voice, or nobody got so angry that they threw something, because I felt like those were experiences that I wanted to try and understand. And as you said, not excused, but to make them the actions of real flawed people rather than the actions of bad people.
1: Yes, and so this is a book, I think, that deals with that both in these you know intimate, small ways on a personal level and also on these sort of bigger thematic ways around, as you've already talked quite a bit about, this question of gentrification and what it does to a neighborhood and what it can do to the people who live there. So I was curious about, I guess, whether... First, whether you think there's such a thing as a political novel, and second, whether you would say that your book fits into that category.
2: I think that there is such a thing as a political novel, and I think that all novels advance sort of a kind of politics or ethics because no novels happen in no context right? Mm -hmm. And so I think in my book, that context is really foregrounded as part of what the book is about. It's in part about gentrification. But I wouldn't say that my book is any more political than any other novel about people whose lives take place in a context, because I think that it's ultimately about real people and their interior lives and their relationships and how that context presses in and informs it, which is true of All of our lives, whether we view our lives as explicitly political or not. So, you know, the Harpers, who are the newcomers to the neighborhood, are grappling with questions that are political, but they're also just questions about how to live with people around you. So, how do we be good neighbors? Are we beneficiaries of racism? And if we are, what do we do with that? Do we look away from that? How can we meaningfully connect with the woman of color who's living upstairs? And I think that those are really human questions.
1: And do you as a writer worry about tackling the hard questions? Do you worry about, will you alienate certain readers? Will you give offense? Is it something that inhibits you in your writing? Or is it something that you, that is part of what I guess, motivates that in in, you know that writing instinct
2: Mm -hmm. it's certainly something that I think a lot about and I think that the hard questions are often the ones that are the most interesting and sticky um, and the ones that lead us to new insights and new parts of ourselves if we ponder them. And so I feel committed to asking those questions. And in fact, I often start with a question when I'm writing. Um, And that is a commitment of mine that I expect to continue to have throughout my career. But I do think a lot about how that might influence or shape the experience of a reader. I think that the politics of my book might seem more obvious from the blurb or what's on the jacket than the actual content of the book itself. So I have thought before that perhaps a book about gentrification might seem unpalatable to someone who's reading the back of the book. But I think if that person finds something that speaks to them in the jacket and actually spends some time taking a chance on the book and reading it, that what they'll find is a book that is in many ways relatable and that they have um, a context and a frame to understand, and that is about much more than any kind of agenda and that certainly isn't a work that's polemic in nature but is rather a family story and race and class are a part of that
1: so let's let's finish up. I wanted to ask you about this. Penelope is renting an attic room from this white couple that you mentioned the Harpers who've moved into the neighborhood and there's a point, it's on page 62, where she refers to herself as, quote, the woman in the attic. So for me, as a former English major, of course, this brought up resonances of Jane Eyre and Wide Sargasso's Sea. And I was wondering if you could speak to how those books influenced you as a writer and influenced this novel in particular, because I have to think that was intentional.
2: It was absolutely intentional. And I was thinking very much of Jane Eyre it's not the reason I put Penelope in the attic, but once she was there, (laughs) I thought, what an interesting position. Um, And I remember being in high school and reading Jane Eyre and being so troubled by the description of the woman in the attic who had lived in the West Indies because my family's from the Caribbean. And so Mm -hmm. as soon as she was introduced and her story um, revealed, I thought, she she is the person that I feel connected to in this story. Um, And the novel is giving her such a hard time. And so that was one of my ways of speaking back to Jane Eyre through this book. And also playing with the idea of the kinds of distance and intimacy that can exist between people across lines of class and race. So even if Penelope lives in the home of the Harpers, there's still all of these tensions and barriers that they have to negotiate. But it was absolutely intentional.
1: Well, Naeem, it has been such a pleasure talking to you this evening. Thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having me, Sid. I've been thrilled to talk with you about my book.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Emily Moore and Sophronia Scott. Emily, who's the author of the poetry collection Shuffle, was last on Book Talk discussing Claire Massoud's novel The Burning Girl. Sophronia was last on our show talking about her own novel, Unforgivable Love, which you should go buy and read right now if you haven't already. Sophronia and Emily, great to have you both back.
3: Great to be back. Thanks, Sid.
1: Glad to be here. So let's maybe start where I ended with Naima, this idea of the woman in the attic with its echoes of Jane Eyre. What did you two make of that, and how did it affect your reading of the novel? At first I kept thinking,
3: no, she can't really be in the attic. And I started thinking about brownstones and, and, and like, would she really go there? Is she really putting this black woman from the Caribbean in the attic just like Jane Eyre? And it was it was just kind of eerie to me, especially the way she she kept to herself and the way she listened to the, the people downstairs and wondered about their, their life. Um, there, there was something uh, poignant about it, I thought, that um, I just kept waiting for her to, uh, I, th- I felt like it was a launching pad. So, you know, what happens when the woman comes out of the attic? You know, in Jane Eyre, we know she, she you know takes a flyer there. So I was very just, you know, anticipating what would happen when Penelope came out of the attic.
4: I was also interested, I had the same reaction in terms of sort of her being there and why she was put there. I also thought there were some really interesting connections. She begins the um, novel with Penelope in a bar, I think it's a basement bar, called The Anchor. And then in the attic scene, she talks a lot about the portal window of the attic. So I thought a lot about sort of the basement versus the attic and I thought about the, the sort of boat and I thought about the observational quality and I did um, think too speaking of Sophronia's idea about how sort of how the author is going to get this, this not mad woman out of the attic. I thought too of the object studies that she's painting from her portal window in the attic and I also thought, too, about Ralph living, I believe he lives on the second floor, Ralph, Penelope's father, and just the idea of sort of not quite finding your floor or the idea of reclaiming the homes that you are a part of and that you can reclaim versus homes that you're not a part of where you're pushed, pushed up and pushed out to the attic. I wonder if there's a gentrification resonance there as well.
1: Well, I thought there was a really interesting kind of parallelism between this idea of gentrification and colonialism that I hadn't really thought about until that moment of kind of thinking of her in the attic as this Jane Eyre-like character and from the West Indies and, you know, the, the way that the British kind of take that over and marginalize the people who live there. But I also thought it was interesting that no one really puts Penelope in the attic but herself, you know, and that's a, to me, felt like a significant departure from Jane Eyre and spoke to kind of her own agency or maybe lack thereof or what she perceives as her own lack of agency. And maybe that's something that changes a little bit over the course of the novel, that she starts to feel like she has some say over whether she has to stay in the attic or whether she can come out.
4: I think that's true. One thing that I thought a lot of is that Penelope is one of the most stubborn heroines that I've encountered in a long time, which it seems to run in her family. And I, I did I did think that. I did think, too, about questions of agency. And there are these powerful moments towards the end with her um, holding the deed to the house Um and confronting her mother and asking for the the signatures to to take over the halsey street house and i i thought too as, of that as a moment of you know captured agency after this sort of almost like stubborn occupancy of the attic for so long
3: this question of agency is is huge for penelope and john even says to her right that she acts as though life is just happening to her and yeah, you know, but I was disappointed that 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 was her first active agency to to come and demand this this deed signing from her mother, mm-hmm. uh, because I don't feel as though she took ownership of Halsey Street in the way that that, um, that that didn't seem like it was a, a move forward because she constantly saw it as a move back. You know that's why she didn't want to stay there or she went into the attic. So I'm not I, you know, I was conflicted about that.
1: And I think that question of agency and whether or not she. Gains more agency over the course of the novel is also complicated by the fact that although she is the one who puts herself in the attic, it's not entirely clear to me that she's the one who takes herself out. You know, there is a point where she says to Marcus, the white homeowner who she has an affair with, um, she says, I'm leaving after he ends the affair and she decides she's going to to, to depart. But then she stays. And it's only when his wife kicks her out that she actually leaves. His wife says you know, we're ending this, you have to sign this paper saying that your lease is up. And she signs and then she leaves. And so even that moment, which I felt like should have been kind of triumphant for her saying, I will no longer be in the attic, I'm going to emerge, you know, onto into my own abode and my own place of belonging was was really complicated.
3: Yes. And I feel as though all, all of her acts of so called agency are complicated in that way, and you know even when it seems like she she wants something it's it's not clear of why she wants it or why she's attached to something and she she stubbornly holds on to wrong ideas of of what love is and and who loves her and how love is presented in her family,
4: yes, to add to that and maybe this will be the segue to the mother daughter piece but she and her mother Maria are so similar and they are so stubborn and i feel like there was such incredible tension in the writing when penelope visits her mother in the in her mother's uh, home in the dominican republic and just the that they're both so stubborn with each other and you feel like it they both they want a sort of a connection that they're also kind of actively both working against in this funny way, and I, I kept thinking of all the all the similarities between actually Penelope and both of her stubborn parents, but in, and particularly with her mother and how they they have so much in common, but their their ability to connect just they continue to thwart their own ability to connect.
3: Yes, that scene where at, at Christmas time, right, where Penelope comes to this realization about her father, and. I thought that this would be a moment, if not in that moment, of eventually in the book, that she would have this, um, that she would share this moment with her mother and and maybe even come to a realization, oh, maybe this is why um, mom left him. And, and it's the exact moment, like her mom has had an exact moment with um, Ralph in that way. But Penelope never comes to that realization and never shares that moment with her mother. And that just just shocked and surprised and disappointed me.
4: Yes. And actually I hadn't connected that um until just this moment, but there's that really uh beautiful and sort of haunting phrase that's on the postcard that her mother sends, have you found your life? And the um the answer that Penelope can't and doesn't give but sort of gives the that Coster gives the reader is um Yakasi. I, I might not be pronouncing mm-hmm, that correctly, mm-hmm. but um, but but almost. And I feel like that is really sort of as much as happens between Penelope and her mother. It's like almost her mother puts up those pictures th- that Penelope sort of thinks of as bad art, you know, over the mantle in her home. And Penelope judges them. But you find out that from her the writing that in her mother's perspective, she sort of puts them up thinking of Penelope and then Penelope um, in in a you know beautiful penultimate scene, um, creates a new a painting or a, you know a real painting, this sort of beginning of her adult life as an artist painting and wants to replace one of those paintings of her mother's. and you just you just feel like almost almost.
1: Yeah and I <laughs> actually found tiram- that I found that so realistic and even though I you know in some ways agree with Sophronia that you want that moment of realization of epiphany from Penelope. you know she has that moment at Christmas time when her father gives her this gift of these frames which shows he hasn't really been paying attention to her at all. He doesn't know she hasn't painted for years and she feels so unseen. And it does mirror that moment when Maria throws the coffee pot at Ralph, where she similarly feels <laughs> so unseen by this man whose love they both desire and and whose love they kind of compete for, which is one of the things they drive them apart. And yet Penelope's blindness to that felt very believable to me in that way that it's the people that we're closest to whom we often see in the most obscured ways. And it was striking to me that Penelope, as an artist, can sometimes only see what is right before her, and she's unable to see beyond it into the depths. And it's kind of the reason, you know, she does these object studies. She's painting what is literally before her, and yet if there is more, she's not always able to access it. And I think that's what her teachers at RISD are commenting on, And again, it's complicated because you don't know if, you know, if if they're sort of limited in their perception of art, if they're pushing for something that, you know, will be more abstract or contemporary and maybe not appreciating her talent. But I felt like that there was something real there to the criticism of even as an artist, she cannot necessarily see what is there.
3: I I think that's a great observation, Sid, um, because she, she doesn't seem to be able to go below the surface. And even, and she can't seem to hear that criticism either. You know, John, this is what John is, is saying to her constantly over and over again. And, and she refuses to, to, um, to even consider the, um, the observations that he's making about her and her life and
1: her parents
4: it's true you know on a side note he's such a charming boyfriend and of course she resists him too forever oh, and you're like
1: treat him better please please I
4: know. But, but on the same token um and speaking of sort of not seeing what's there what's being communicated um there are those scenes where um Maria uh, is in her garden and we sort of see Maria trying to communicate through her garden both actually in um Bed-Stuy and in the Dominican Republic, and um, and that is the painting that Penelope goes for at the end. But she doesn't. I think she sees it in her art in that in that moment of painting towards the end. But she doesn't see it when that's what when that's the medium that Maria is also is trying to communicate. And yet,
1: that felt to me like maybe a moment of transformation of of kind of movement in the journey because that's the moment when Penelope is not just painting an object study, and in fact, it says very specifically. She didn't look closely at the garden. She doesn't really remember what kind of flowers were there. And so even though she's painting from memory, she's kind of painting from her memory of what it should be or what it felt like. And it's, it, it's much more abstract. It's light-filled. And it is, you know, it is kind of that seeing beyond in a way that she hasn't been capable of until that moment. And one thing that I also was, was really struck by was, you know, the two languages that she and Maria speak in and how that operates on both a literal and metaphorical way that you know they have so much trouble communicating and part of it is you know again literally because they're not necessarily speaking the same language to each other and yet that's obviously a metaphor as well
4: absolutely and i also loved how coster does doesn't always translate um more than some other novels that i've read recently that have multiple languages represented that she also doesn't translate really critical pieces of Spanish that get used. And I, I just thought that that added another level for the reader as well. It both invites, um, you know, the bilingual reader, it, it sort of rewards a level of fluency. And also um, for non-bilingual readers, I feel like it, it sort of mirrors some of those gaps in a way that I found really moving. And I really loved that uh, risk that she took as a writer.
1: Yeah, I think it does exactly that for the for the non Spanish speaking reader you're kind of put in that position of being the one who does not who can't fully access what is what is there and that can you know and that that kind of takes multiple forms right like in some ways that is that's the harpers who have moved into this neighborhood uh mm-hmm. that is not really theirs and they feel even though they are maybe the colonizers the gentrifiers they feel that they are marginalized in some way because they can't relate to the people there. And it can also, you know, be Penelope feeling like she can't kind of be part of of any of the worlds that, that she is supposed to inhabit, of her college world, of her old neighborhood, or of her new one. And so it, you know, very deliberately places the reader in that exact position.
3: Penelope, I, I kept waiting for her to step into um, one of her worlds and she she just seemed to have this this um this anger which i couldn't tell if it was real or you know it was just she was just being irrational but she seemed so a- against what was happening to her neighborhood that she that she was sort of um putting thoughts and stories onto people right so you know of course the harpers you know were uncomfortable there but but she was also making not accusations, but but just thoughts in her head about, you know, about what they thought about things when really not knowing them at all. And, and she's kind of doing what they're doing and not realizing it, you know, ascribing a story to them.
4: That's actually a really interesting um, idea. I, th- I was sort of perplexed by and fascinated by the affair that Penelope has with Marcus. And there are echoes, of course, of Jane Eyre there with the, you know, Caribbean woman in the attic. And... Um, and, you know, his marriage to the other women. But and I just kept wondering, you know, I, I liked that Koster makes Penelope an agent in terms of her own, you know, sexuality and life. But I, I kept, um, I was sort of frustrated that she, you know, for all her feelings about Marcus and what he represents in the neighborhood, that she also sort of chooses Marcus or finds him compelling enough to have this uh, brief affair with him. And I think that question, you know, that it also brings up sort of questions of agency and complicity and the sort of complications of, you know, there, there's, I guess, a metaphorical level too in terms of the complications of gentrification as well. You know, there's some ways in which Penelope sees better than other characters. She sees the, her father's record store um, that is displaced by Sprout, the ritzy grocery store, but Mm -hmm. she also doesn't see or doesn't seem to see in ways that I found frustrating and and intriguing, you know, um, some of the, maybe some of the problems or questions uh, that her affair with Marcus, the homeowner, might raise.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that, Emily, because I thought her affair with Marcus was really interesting as well, partly because of the way it kind of inverts Jane Eyre. You know, so mm-hmm. in Jane Eyre it's the wife who's in the attic um and it's the it 's the new person, the new governess who comes in who woos and or is you know is is won her heart is won by mr Rochester and here you know she is the one who comes in and kind of implodes that marriage um and she very much is the seducer in that relationship, though Marcus is a very mm-hmm. willing participant, but it was also you know there's a part at the end when. John kind of queries her about why she had that relationship with Marcus in the first place. And without saying so to him in her head, she thinks, because I was lonely, because he wanted me, because he was a good father, because oh. he was kind. And I thought, like that just totally answered it. Like all of those things, you know, basically she's <laughs> lonely and bored. Secondly, he wants her. And, you know, she's someone who I think, as someone who grew up feeling very unloved, both by her father and her mother, she is desperate to have that there's a point earlier in the book where she says, you know, how, how she kind of sticks to the things she knows how to do. And one of them is these object studies and another one is sex. Like she knows how to seduce a man and and it Mm -hmm. makes her feel temporarily powerful and temporarily loved. Um, And then this idea of him as a good father, like the father that she wishes she could have. She's so drawn to that. And, you know, it kind of all of that kind of overrides whatever, Complicated feelings she has about him being a white man in the neighborhood, or maybe is you know maybe is part of that because again it goes to this question of agency. It's like, well, you can come in and take my neighborhood, but look how I can manipulate you, and that's all operating on some level. And I liked how it could be that kind of multiplicity of motives without needing to distill it down to one.
4: Yeah, you know what? Actually, that's really well. That's really well put, and that brings in a lot of levels. I hadn't thought of. And just to add to that, I think one of the moments that Marcus first, well, one, the the loneliness, her loneliness from her childhood is so profound and informs so much of this. And two, there is that moment where I think she comes back from a run and she just feels fantastic about her body. And she should. And she's described as you know, like sort of golden skinned and glowing, and her hair is curly and gorgeous, and like there's a way in which you know that that moment, and she kind of sees Marcus seeing her, and and I think that does add a, a level of, you know, uh, agency and interest to that to that moment as well.
3: Yeah, isn't it interesting that that the, the moments of agency that she does have is where she is about to have. Sex with someone, and, and she says she knows that she can have him, right? That she knows that she's going to be able to, to take this person. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, you know Sid mentions her, her lonely childhood. It's interesting to me that she never uses that agency to connect with people when she does leave and, and you know, goes to college and then later to Pittsburgh. That, you know, yes, she was lonely because her parents essentially kept her that way but she didn't have to stay that way once she left home, and yet she she chose to to be alone.
1: I think one of the things that this book is about is about how much we inherit from our parents and how much we choose to shape our own selves and how those two things interact. You know, there's a line that Marcus says about how daughters inherit either their fear or their courage from their mothers. And, you know, his kind of take on it is, you know, in in the... in the daughter are the seeds of the mother. Maybe there isn't that much agency there, and I think that Penelope feels that for a long time. Like she has learned how to operate in the world from her mother. She talks about how the only things she's learned from her mother are these sharp edges and how to cut people, and that's certainly what we see in how she treats John, and and you know a number of other people in the book, including her mother. Um, and part of it is about you know learning how to say I can transcend that. I am not just what my parents created, but I can be more than that. So it is interesting to me that in the end, you know, she's back where she started. She's in this house on Halsey Street, and as I talked about in the interview with Naima, it seems to me kind of an ambu- a- ambiguous place to land, but kind of an acknowledgement of like, yes, there there are certain things we inherit that we can never shed ourselves of, but maybe it's about embracing those things that are positive and then being able to change the ones that we feel are holding us back.
4: Absolutely. I thought a lot about the houses and sort of reclamation of houses in this book and how Maria's mother, Ramona, is from the mountains and and leaves the mountains and is is an only child of parents who are very different from each other and complicated and that home is shattered early in her life and then she returns to the mountains. And I thought of Maria who herself leaves the Dominican Republic and builds, you know, marries and builds a life in Bedsty and then returns to the Dominican Republic. And I thought about Penelope who, you know, leaves Halsey Street and then returns and the ways that these homes are sort of changed and, and reclaimed or not quite reclaimed or you hope you hope that Penelope is going to reclaim her home and actually on a, on a side note, at gentrification level, speaking as the Brooklynite in this. <laughs> conversation. hipster Brooklynite. I also enjoyed. Yeah. I also enjoyed that Penelope, you know, reclaims this Bed-Stuy Brownstone, which is an enormously valuable <laughs> piece of real estate, which, you know, I felt, I felt glad that it, glad that it was her and could be her. Um And that she didn't kind of throw that, you know, baby out with the bathwater.
3: You know, Emily, i I love real estate and I I do love brownstones. I used to have the dream of living in a brownstone. <laughs> and and actually I wanted to hear more about that house. I really did. <laughs> totally. You know, we only know about the the parlor room and then, you know, the second floor and I was like, "No, brownstones have four floors." And, yes, you know, what yes, is going right. on with the rest exactly. of that house? That's a big house. <laughs> what 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 is going on with this space? And and she, yeah, she's inherited a serious piece of real estate, and I'm I'm excited to hear. Well, what's she going to do with it? What's she going to yeah, do with like the garden? Yeah, She
4: needs some rental income. Exactly, coming out. exactly, exactly. And her art. And I'm totally with you. You know, one. and I I'm not <laughs> hearing. I didn't hear any of that happening. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> We're the same reader. We're the same reader.
1: So before we finish up, I wanted to bring up one last thing, which Sophronia I think had raised in our pre conversation to this taping um, about Samantha. And what kind of person she is. And Sepharania, you had mentioned that there's a part where uh, she's described as someone who feels like if a house is going to be broken into, it is her house. And if a purse will be stolen, it's her purse. And, you know, what that says about her. So I'm interested to hear your take on that and yours as well, Emily, because I think I might have a slightly different one.
3: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting way Penelope described Samantha. She said she, one of those women who thinks the world... Revolves around her, and I, I just thought that that was an interesting observation, and it made me think about social media and how um, there are people who behave as though the world is monitoring their social media, and they feel that they have to announce when they were going off Facebook, <laughs> and when they were going away, and when they are coming back. and And I just thought, wow, you know, who, who are the people who who feel that the the world is looking at them in that way. I mean, is it really a narcissistic thing or is it an insecurity? I I wasn't sure, but I just found that observation fascinating.
4: Yes. I, you know, I'm thinking of Samantha um, Marcus's wife. She, she's such a cold character in the beginning. And that, that observation, I don't remember when it's revealed in terms of the revelation of her character, but I feel like she's so easy to judge in the beginning she's kind of this cold lawyer type and always taking black cars around um Bensty you know not afraid to walk afraid to have her daughter there kind of living living there but not uh, able to embrace the place or see, even see the place clearly and she she You know, I I judged her in the beginning in the same way that I think Morea is kind of a tough character at the beginning. But, you know, then by the end, I felt like I understood a little more about Samantha when she and her daughter walk through the neighborhood to bring Penelope a plant, you know, to, to mark her loss. I felt like there's this slight relaxation. You know, you sort of hope that Samantha has moved beyond that description of her. But I, I, I loved that. Um, I love that you brought it up because I it, I did, it did strike me as um, just a great little piece of writing.
1: Well, it's so interesting, right? Because you can absolutely read that as a kind of narcissism. You know, the world revolves around me. These things are going to happen to me. But I think there's another way to read it, which is kind of the anti-narcissism, which is, you know, I th- it seems somehow narcissistic to think none of no, no bad things will ever happen to me. So my husband and I are very different in this way. You know, his take is always, oh, the odds of that happening are infinitesimal. So you shouldn't worry about it. And my take is, well, it's going to happen to someone like, why are we safe? Like what, what's so special about us that makes us think that we are safe and that the bad thing won't happen to us. That feels incredibly egotistical to me to think that you're immune from the bad things happening. And I think there's a way to read Samantha in that much more sympathetic way. You know, this bad thing has happened to her. She lost her baby. And she might feel like, you know, what more bad things are going to happen to me? I, You know, my money doesn't make me safe. My whiteness doesn't make me safe. Like, my big house doesn't make me safe. So what can I do to keep my family safe? And I liked that the book, and it can leave it open as to which of those things it might be. The book's not particularly sympathetic to her, but I think it does kind of give us that ability to read her in a way that recognizes her humanity as much as it does Penelope and Mireia's. Well, Sophroni and Emily, uh, as ever, it has been great talking to you, and I know we could talk longer, but our time is up. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much.
3: Thanks for having us, Sid.
1: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Melissa Meager recommends Fuzzy Mud by Louis Sakar. Hi, I'm
0: Melissa Meager, a children's librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library, Wilson Branch. I'm here to recommend and review the children's fiction book Fuzzy Mud by Louis Sacker. Middle schoolers Tamara and Marshall walk to and from school every day together. One day Marshall's classmate Chad threatens to fight him and Marshall tries to avoid Chad by walking through the woods. Tamea follows Marshall into the woods but she quickly realizes that Marshall doesn't know where he is going. Chad is able to find them in the woods and starts to push and punch Marshall. Tamea protects her friend by throwing fuzzy mud at Chad and the two of them are able to run away and find their way home. The next day Tamea notices her hand is all red and blistered and puts medicine all over it. Once they get to school they learn that Chad is missing. Tamea sneaks back into the woods to find Chad and eventually Marshall follows her in there too. A detailed search continues by both Tamea and Marshall and members of the school. What happens next will leave you on the end of your seat. Fuzzy Mud is a fast paced novel filled with adventure, mystery, and suspense. But my favorite aspect of this book is the different timelines. Mostly it's based on the present, but the past and the future have small chapters as well. Sacker gives you just enough information to try and solve the mystery before the book ends. This book is recommended for children in grades four through six, and you can find it among other chapter books in the children's fiction section of your local library. Our librarians are happy to help you find it, as well as any other book. As a reminder, all books discussed on Book Talk can always be found at the New Haven Free Public Library.
1: Thanks, Melissa. On our next show, airing February 7th, we'll be talking about the novel The Hazelwood. First with the author... Melissa Albert, and then with my guests, Tui Sutherland and Brian Slattery. Be sure to tune in. You can see what else is coming up or listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. And, as ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode of Book Talk or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.